And so I, I want to just for a minute talk to some of you who would have no religious affiliation tonight. In a room this size, you have to be here. I guarantee it. Now, I didn't talk with anyone ahead of time, so I don't know who's who. So if you're thinking, why has he got to pick on me? Why is he talking to me? I'm not, all right? I'm, I'm talking to this group here, according to Pew, in Pittsburgh, religious nuns, N-O-N-E. And then after I address you for a couple minutes, we're gonna go through Romans chapter six, one through four. Is that okay? Thumbs up? All right, good. Now, for those of you who are Christians, I still want you to listen because these are the assumptions of what has been termed our secular age. These are just, well, of course, statements. Everyone believes that. But when you dig a little deeper on these statements, you see that, well, maybe not, maybe not. The first assumption of those who are secular or those who are religious nuns is that there are many perspectives on God and religion, and no one has the truth. There are many perspectives on God. There are many religious views, and no one has it right. And this second assumption ties into the first. The second assumption is this. How arrogant it is for you to claim you have the truth. Who do you think you are saying that you have the truth? And so a little parable is often given, and how many of you have uh, heard the parable of the blind men and the elephant? Just a few of you, okay, well, that's good. So imagine five blind men stumble upon an elephant and their task is to describe the elephant. The elephant in our illustration represents God and religion and the blind men represent people, okay? So the first blind man feels the side of the elephant and says, an elephant is like a wall. An elephant must be a wall. The second blind man feels the trunk and says, an elephant is like a snake. Therefore, an elephant must be like a snake. The third feels a leg and says, an elephant is like a tree. Therefore, an elephant is just like a tree. The fourth feels the ear and says, an elephant is like a fan. You know, one of those hand fans. An elephant is like a fan, and so therefore, elephants are like fans. And the fifth feels the tail and says, no, 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 an elephant is like a rope. Elephants are like ropes. And this parable is often used by religious nuns or secular people to say, oh, you Christians think you have the truth, but really, you are just feeling one part of reality, but you can't see the whole. Okay, and then the assumption would be there are many perspectives and each has a unique perspective on reality, okay, and God. And then the second assumption is for Christians, how arrogant you are to believe you have the truth. All right, you ready for the answer, friends? Here's the answer. The, the elephant parable is very clever, but here's what's left out. The person telling the story is claiming to see the whole elephant. You get that? The, the person telling the story has the perspective of all reality in their mind for them to be able to say, well, you know, there's a tail and there's a side and there's a trunk and there's a leg. They see the whole thing. Therefore, they are claiming to have ultimate truth. We see and we have truth and you do not. You have a piece of truth. But in order to be able to even tell the story, you have to claim to have the truth. And isn't that arrogant? Isn't it? So therefore, be careful when you 
claim others are arrogance when your arrogance might be shrouded and hidden in the shadows, your arrogance. Okay, be careful. And I'm trying to help you here. I'm not dogging you. I love you. I would love to have a conversation with you over coffee or, or buy you some dinner and we can talk about any of these things. Here's assumption number, assumption number three. Science has disproven God. I mean, we all know that science proves that there is no God. Well, he, here's the problem with that, okay? The problem is science deals specifically with the material world. It deals with matter. It deals with physics. God, by definition, is not the natural. He is supernatural. When we're talking about religion, and specifically the Christian religion, we're actually not dealing with physics or matter, we're dealing with metaphysics, which means higher than the, the reality of material. We're dealing with the immaterial, unseen world. And so therefore, how can science that only deals with matter wrestle with what is non-matter? The answer is it cannot. But see, the assumption is, well, of course, science has disproved God. Now, here's something underneath science uh, trying to disprove God. Science is often a religious commitment for those who believe in it, and they believe that science will ultimately save us. In fact, there are people being frozen right now in hopes that we will find the key to eternal life, and once we find that, they could be uh, revived and, and they can live forever. Uh, some are working on right now, Google, you can look this up, Google's ambition is to overcome death. And so the scientific community has religious commitments, much like Christians. And interestingly, isn't it interesting how science comes out with new reports that disproves the old science all the time? Isn't that interesting? A new report shows these scientists were wrong, and now we're just waiting for this new report to be discredited as well. The point I'm making, friends, is a commitment to science as a religion is a faith commitment, much like Christianity. You believe, and so you commit to it. However, much of your faith is in hypotheses that have been disproven throughout centuries. And so be careful thinking that science will reveal ultimate reality when actually science only deals with the material realm. All right, assumption number four, I'm running out of time. Assumption number four is this. Christianity is much like a moral cage. It constrains, it constricts, it chokes you. It overpowers freedom and it squashes its adherence. That is a pretty common belief of religious nuns towards Christianity. Now, here's, here's what I wanna propose to you if, if you believe that. You're imagining that you understand how morality ought to work. If you hold to that view that Christianity and its morality is a cage and a constraining force and oppressive force in the world, then you are saying by that that you understand ultimate morality and it rests with you. You get that? That's a huge claim that you're making when you say that. In addition, you're assuming that you know what human beings are for. Purpose. Friends, do you realize that the God of the Bible claims from the Bible that we human beings are made in his image and we were made for a purpose? 
That purpose is to live for him, to know him in relationship, and to live in such a way that, yes, our morality, the right things and the, and the things we shouldn't do, the wrong things, glorify him. And I wanna ask you a question. If we don't have someone higher than us giving us a purpose, then how do we find purpose? You make up your purpose if you don't receive your purpose from a higher being. That's the answer. And so many people have very weak purposes. And now I wanna ask you a further question. If Christianity is a cage, you're assuming that you know what people are for. And I wanna ask you this. This has been asked before, this is not original to me. When is a bird most free? When is a bird most free? Come on. In the air. When is a fish most free? In the water, right? Where, where is a worm most free? This is not a trick question. In the dirt, thank you. Friends, listen to me. If we were really made by God and for relationship with him and to live for his glory, when are human beings most free? When we know God, when we are enjoying him, when we are in fellowship with him, and when we are living according to his moral standards. That's when we're most free. In fact, Galatians chapter five, verse one says, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. And so perhaps from the outside looking in, Christianity looks like a cage and a straitjacket. but I can testify from the inside that really I have been let out of the cage. I have been set free, and now I know my creator, I know my purpose, and I can walk with him and enjoy him every single day, having his favor and having no fear of meeting him on judgment day which the Bible clearly says all people will. Assumption number five, and we're done. Truth is relative to the person making the truth claims. So truth is relative to the person making the truth claims, or truth is relative. Now, if we back up from that assumption for just a second, here's what you need to think about. If truth is relative, then so is the statement of truth that truth is relative. It's a self-defeating sentence. It's a self-defeating argument. What do I mean by that? Let's say you come up to someone and you try to tell them, oh, yeah, that's your truth, that's your truth. I don't want to know Jesus. Don't you know that truth is relative to the person making the statement? And then what you have to ask them is, friends, is that statement then that you're standing on as truth true? And if they say yes, then you have to say, well then doesn't your statement apply to your truth? And the answer is it must. Therefore, it's a self-defeating assumption. Here's another one. We, we think that morality or right and wrong is subject to the person, subject to the person. That's an assumption of, of a lot of secular people. Uh, morality, you know, it's, it's subjective, it's not objective. Well, here's the question I would ask you. Let's say that you're walking down the road and someone comes up to you and says, hey, your wallet or your purse, that's my wallet, that's my purse, and that's my truth. What are you gonna say? No, it's not. It's my wallet, that's my purse, that's my truth, therefore give me what is mine. And you, you would not be okay with that. Let's imagine you're driving down the car, you're, at, you're down the parkway, or 
better yet, not the parkway, let's say right down here on Penn, and you go to the, to the stop sign out here and someone opens up the car very gently, very graciously, and they say, hey, this is my car. It's not your car, this is my car. I pay for it, I change the oil, I do the brakes. No, this is my car, this is my truth, my car. What are you gonna say to them? This is my car, close the door and get out of here, call an Uber, man. But see, the idea is, this doesn't work in reality. The idea that everyone has their own truth just doesn't work. No one lives like that. It's a, it's a false reality or a false assumption. Let's imagine that as parents, we, we know this with kids. Let's say that the kids are smacking one another and, and you bust in the room and one's screaming and there's maybe even some blood and, and you say, what happened? And then the one who did the hitting said, they hit me first. <laughs> my kids, this, is, this happens in my house often. Yeah, this is a regular occurrence. And, and so the one's bleeding, the one you know, has a slap on the, on the hand, a red mark, you know, and so it's obvious the one did it. Look, my truth is I didn't do anything to them, and they're making this all up. Now we as parents would not be like, oh, you're right, I mean, truth is relative, so what can I say and just walk away? No, no one lives like that assumption is true. Right? It sounds good in the philosophy classroom, but when it comes to reality, no one lives like truth is relative. When you open your online banking, that is the truth. And I dare PNC to drop it by two or $300 and then say, well, this is our truth. No one lives like this, friends. And so here, here's, here's what I wanna say to you. We need to learn to question the assumptions that are in the air of our culture because a lot of them with just a little more looking, looking a little deeper, you'll see that these assumptions do not work. They're false. Now, the Bible does claim to have ultimate authority. Did you know that? That the Bible itself claims that it is the highest authority on all things that it speaks to. Now, you can't prove an ultimate authority with anything else or that thing you're trying to prove it with then becomes the ultimate authority. Therefore, the Bible itself claiming to have ultimate authority and truth is itself justifying its own truth claims. And you say, that's circular. And I would say, yes and amen, it is circular. But then I would ask you, how do we know truth in any other realm? And now you might say, well, well, we know truth from science. Well, I would ask you then, how do you know science is true? And what you're gonna say to me is, well, the scientific method, you know, you, hypothesis, and then testing, and then retesting, and oh, so you're appealing to science to prove to me that science is true. Oh, I didn't think about that. Yeah, you are. Or what about your own rational capabilities? You know, I, I think, therefore I am. And so I can rationally come to truth. Well, how do you know that your rational abilities are the ultimate standard for truth? And you say, well, because I think and because I can reason it. Oh, so you're appealing to rationality to prove that your rationality is true. You see, any claim to ultimate authority must appeal to itself or it cannot be an ultimate authority. Now, for Christians, we can look outside of the Bible for confirmation of its claims, but not to prove it. So we do look to archaeology, we do look to prophecy, we do look to manuscript evidence, we do look to history, 
But those don't prove the Bible, they simply confirm the truths that the Bible already claims. And I would challenge you, friends, go to history and try to prove the Bible wrong. Go to archeology, span try to prove the Bible wrong. Go to prophecy, the Bible's internal consistencies, and try to prove it wrong. What I imagine, if you're serious about that study, you will find that the Bible is an amazing and living book. You are not reading it, it begins to read you. This is what will happen. And so in that light, let us now turn to the scriptures. Romans 6, one to four, and I'm gonna fly through this because we don't have time and the kids are getting rowdy, okay? This, this is just an extension of what we're already doing on Sunday nights. We are going through the book of Romans verse by verse by verse by verse. This just happens to be the text that we're in tonight. It's kind of magical. It's a baptismal text. We plan none of this. I'm kidding, it was totally planned. We would be going through the baptismal text on the night we had baptism. It's very strategic, but let's learn what you're about to witness from the Bible itself. So Romans chapter six, one to four. Paul arguing to the church at Rome says, what shall we say then? He's talking about in light of the first five chapters and specifically what came right before chapter six, which is in Adam, our first father, all received the sin nature. But those in Jesus, the second Adam, receive his perfect living in place of their imperfect living. That those in Jesus receive his righteousness and he receives on the cross their unrighteousness or their sin. That's what just came before this. And so Paul then says, what shall we say then? In light of this great exchange, in light of Jesus living in your place, in light of Jesus dying in your place, in light of you exercising your faith or trusting in Jesus that he would forgive your sins and give you a perfect righteousness, in light of that, what shall we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Now grace has been unpacked in the first five chapters and it simply means unearned, undeserved, demerited favor of God. Purely gift, you've done nothing to get it, you've done nothing to earn it, all you can do is receive it, that's it. That's grace, friends. It's not that you come after God, it's that he comes after you. This is grace. And so in light of that, well, if it's not about me, if it's not about what I do, then shouldn't we just continue sinning against God so that grace may get bigger and bigger and bigger? I mean, if he's just gonna keep forgiving endlessly and boundlessly, shouldn't we then keep sinning so that God's grace just grows wider and deeper and higher? What's the answer? No. In fact, by no means, some translations say, God forbid, it's a strong no. No, that is not a right conclusion to the first five chapters. By no means. And then here's his argument. Did you know that the Bible argues? It argues a lot. Here's his argument. How can we who died to sin live in it? And you say, that's a weird argument. It's not if you understand what's called union with Jesus. This is what baptism is picturing, friends. When we believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins, when we ask for mercy and grace from Jesus, he unites us to himself. It's much like the picture of marriage in Genesis 2.24, where it says, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one, flesh. 
union. And so we, friends, are spiritually united to Jesus and remember what happened on the cross. Jesus died a brutal, bloody death for the sins of all those who would trust in him. And so if we're united to him, that means when he died, we died. When Jesus died on the cross, our old sinful self also died with him, spiritually speaking. And so he's saying, look, if you're dead to sin, how can you live in it any longer? That doesn't even make sense. Verse three, do you not know? And so now he's, he's challenging the Roman Christians understanding of what happened in the gospel. What happened in the good news of Jesus? Do you not know that all of us, notice the us, who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Now, this verse is not talking about water baptism. And I know that's a bit confusing. But in this verse here, it's talking more about union with Jesus. Did you know that the word baptism in the Greek, which the New Testament was written, is baptizo, and it literally means to dunk, to immerse, to go underwater, or to dye something. Like you take a, a white cloth and you dunk it under a purple dye and you pull it out and it's now purple. It was used of ships that would sink. The ship was baptized. That's what the word literally means. And so it's to plunge into and under something. So imagine the Christian getting plunged into Jesus and his death becomes our death. We were united with him. Don't you realize you were baptized into his death? Friends, this is in short what it means. Jesus died a brutal, bloody death on the cross, and if you trust in him, that was in your place. It should have been you hanging on the cross. But instead, Jesus says, I love you, and my Father loves you so much that I will take your place up on that cross. You come off, I'll go on. You will get treated like you lived my perfect life, and I will get treated like I lived your sinful life. And when you receive that as a gift, that's called faith. When you receive that as a gift, you are plunged into his death. He took your death on the cross such that it's like you died on the cross. Verse four, we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism, remember, immersion to go under. We were in Jesus, so when he was buried, guess where we were, Christian? Buried. When he was buried, there, I'm sorry, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death. In order that, now, this is a purpose. In order that, this is a purpose. Why? In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead, by the glory of the Father, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, God the Father, by his power, by the Holy Spirit, raised Jesus from the dead, we too might walk in newness of life. This is why we were baptized into the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, friends, so that we can live differently. You see that in verse four. So that we can walk in this newness of life. Friends, we who are Christians have resurrection life right now. You are slowly being transformed into the image of Jesus. This is what Romans 8.29 says. You were predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. And so that newness of life can't help but break out of you if you're a Christian. And so the reason we were united to Jesus in his death and his burial and his resurrection is so that we would look, think, act, 
and even in the motives, be different. The Old Testament prophesying this day would say, you get a new heart, a brand new core at the at the center of your being. I'll take out your heart of stone. I'll give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you. I'll put a new spirit within you. I'll cause you to walk in my ways. This is resurrection life. And so what we're about to witness right now, and we are about to witness it right now, so those who are getting baptized, feel free to get ready for that. Take off your shoes if you need to change. Uh, The bathroom's right back there on my left. Um, the brothers are going to come up while I finish here and put the, put the ladder in the tank. So please try to pay attention to me while all this activity is going on, okay? Try to pay attention for a couple more seconds. I know it's hard. What you're about to witness is a proclamation of these three getting baptized. I have the privilege tonight of baptizing my daughter, who is nine years old. It's a beautiful thing. It's a very celebratory time for me. Uh, We've been talking about Jesus to my daughter since she was like nine years old. Before one year, birthday cake. We were telling her about Jesus. She goes to a Christian school. She has professed faith in Jesus. And she, more newly, says to me and my wife regularly, I'm so glad you guys are Christians. And I was raised to be a Christian. She loves it. She loves it. And she knows firsthand that my wife and I are not righteous, shiny examples of holy saints. She understands, because she lives with us. She knows that we need Jesus just as much as her to forgive us our sins. Friends, I live what I'm speaking to you. I need Jesus' death on the cross for my sins, just like you do. And the offer is here for you today that if you will turn from your sin, which is called repentance, if you will turn from your sin and turn to Jesus and ask him to forgive you all your sins, the promise of the New Testament is that you will have all of your sins washed away. This is another picture of baptism. So what does baptism picture? Very clearly, listen up. It pictures two main things. Number one, You are united with Jesus in his death under the water and resurrection out of the water, newness of life. It's a picture of that. So you are about to see a visible picture of a watery grave and those who are getting baptized are showing physically that they are united with Jesus in his death under the water, dead, buried, and they are risen and alive. Secondly, What we are showing here is that when you trust in Jesus, your sins are washed away. This is the promise of 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, that God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And so baptism pictures not only your union with Jesus, life, death, burial, and resurrection, it pictures the washing of regeneration as Titus 3, 5, and 6 says, or the washing of new birth as John 3, 3 says. We are cleansed when we are united to Jesus. Isn't that good news, friends? I know your guilt has to weigh on you in the middle of the night, because it weighs on me, and I'm a pastor. 
And so what do you do when you wake up in the middle of the night and guilt is plaguing you and you remember that you're unrighteous? You call out to God and say, forgive me. And the promise of the New Testament is you are forgiven. Isn't that good news? And so all we have to do is call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and we will be saved from past sins and its penalty, from current sins and its power, and we will be saved forever from sin, period. It's coming. I can't wait. And so what you're about to experience now is those two clear realities in baptism that Adelina Moran and Davina and Keith are professing to belong to Jesus, and they're united with him in his life, death, burial, and resurrection.